Hi, that girl here today with Dr. Melina Zimmerman, who's a board-certified anesthesiologist at Red Bank Veterinary Hospital, which is part of Compassion First. Dr. Zimmerman, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So just so our audience knows a little bit about you, do you mind just giving us a little bit of background about who you are and where you trained? Sure. So I graduated from Ross University Veterinary School. I did my clinical year at Louisiana State University. Um, I did a small animal rotating internship in Arizona before I did a three-year residency in anesthesia and pain management at Kansas State University. And I've been at Red Bank now for a little over four years doing anesthesia and pain management. Wonderful. Now, I will say it is so awesome to be able to have an anesthesiologist at a busy veterinary specialty hospital. I know we could use one seven days a week. And one of the main reasons why is while we as veterinarians anesthetize things all the time, we're always worried and our anesthetists are always worried when we have any kind of complications under anesthesia. So the first thing I wanted to talk about is that initial hypotension that we may notice when our patient is under gas inhalant. What should we typically be doing in that scenario saying, for example, if the dog or cat does not have any known cardiopulmonary disease? Sure. So that's a great question um, and something that we deal with on almost a daily basis. Uh, You know, if anyone's doing anesthesia, they have to deal with hypotension at some point or another. So I think I really treat it as a stepwise fashion. So typically the first thing that I'll do is check my patient. Um, That pretty much goes for absolutely any anesthetic emergency. You always want to check the patient. You want to assess for anesthetic depth. Um, You want to make sure that your blood pressure monitoring devices are on appropriate limbs, that the cuff size is appropriate. And then after you've checked anesthetic depth, I try and decrease my inhalant as much as possible. Now, there's definitely cases that you have a patient on the table uh, that you're in the middle of the abdomen. You know, the patient is moving their legs. They're on 3% isoflurane or sevoflurane, you know, is up at 5%. And you can't turn down their inhalant any because they're going to be moving off the table. So in those situations, I always like to reassess the analgesic plan. I want to make sure that they've received appropriate analgesics, that there's no CRI, you know, or other analgesic medication I want to add in, and that there's no sort of local or regional anesthesia that I can do in that situation to try and temper the amount of inhalant that I have to use. Because one important thing to remember with isoflurane or sevoflurane um, is that it is a potent vasodilator, but remember that the lower the dose you end up using, the less vasodilation you're going to end up getting. So after I've assessed my patient, the second thing I want to do is always make sure that the heart rate of the patient is within a normal physiologic range, meaning if I have a chihuahua on the table and its heart rate's 50, that's probably not going to be very normal versus, you know, a big lab whose heart rate is 50, um, who's healthy and active, that's probably a normal finding. So in the case of bradycardia and hypotension, I always like to treat the heart rate to make sure that I'm going to be providing enough cardiac output to make maintain perfusion. If the heart rate is normal um, and your patient is as low as they can be on isoflurane, then the third thing I like to do is assess their volume status. So everyone always talks about giving a quick 5 to 10 mil per keg isotonic crystalloid fluid bolus. It's in a normal healthy patient, not going to be harmful to do that. But if you're dealing with isoflurane-induced hypotension, it's really not going to give you more than a one to two minute little bump in blood pressure before the blood pressure comes right back down. So in order to assess volume status, what I'll usually do is I will close the pop-off valve 
hold a positive pressure breath at around 10 to 15 centimeters of water while I'm listening to my Doppler flow signal and watching the waveform of my pulse oximeter photoplethysmograph waveform. And if I have depression of that waveform or if my Doppler flow signal fades with that positive pressure breath, that's a sign that the patient might have a volume deficiency. So if they do have a volume deficiency, then by all means, I go forward with a fluid bolus. And typically, I'll start, like I said, somewhere around 5 to 10 mils per K before I then reassess those parameters and then uh, you know move forward with more fluid resuscitation. There's definitely those cases where you've done these things, you've decreased the anesthetic that you're giving, you've fix the heart rate, you've assessed the volume deficit if there was one, and you still have a patient that's hypotensive, that's typically where I'll move on and go for my vasopressive agent, um, some sort of sympathomimetic or vasopressor. Wonderful. Thank you. Now, the complicated question, what if it's a patient, say, an older cat with renal disease and a heart murmur that's hypotensive? Would you change any of that protocol at all? Because I think those are the classic scenarios or patients that we're often anesthetizing for dentals. Sure. I think that's a really good question um, and a good point to make in those patients that, uh, you know, a lot of the patients that I get involved with are the older patients that have multiple comorbidities. So they may have kidney disease and heart disease. They're getting a dental, so there's not a drastic amount of stimulation. So I'm really relying on, you know, the drugs that I'm using to help keep them normotensive under the procedure. So Again, the big thing to remember with any kind of hypotension is that it's really not the blood pressure that I'm trying to get the perfect number for. I'm really more worried about perfusion. So keeping the kidneys perfused, keeping the heart, um, you know, and all of the other organs perfused is going to be the number one thing that I care about. In those cases, a lot of the times, all from the beginning of anesthesia, have a CRI of either dopamine or norepinephrine ready to go that I typically will start in those cases right off the bat, kind of at a, a moderate level, and then adjust them as I need them during the procedure. Wonderful. Thank you so much. You already mentioned looking at the ECG, looking at the heart rate. What do we do if we have that patient that's having pretty significant tachyarrhythmia or bradyarrhythmia during anesthesia? Yeah, so arrhythmias are definitely something that aren't, uh, you know, not seen under anesthesia. So Brady and tachyarrhythmias are something that, uh, you know, are, are very common that we see on a daily basis as well as hypotension. So if we're having a Brady arrhythmia, I first like to assess the ECG, make sure that I'm clear of what the arrhythmia is. So I always like to check that there's a P wave for every QRS complex um, and that the R to R interval is consistent. I think probably one of the most frequent arrhythmias we'll see under anesthesia is a sinus arrhythmia or a respiratory arrhythmia, which is completely normal um, and something that will oscillate with a patient's respiratory rate. That's something that typically, unless they have a significant enough bradycardia, depending on their body size, their age, and any comorbidities they have, as long as their perfusion I'm assessing is adequate, it's not something that I'm overly concerned about um, until the heart rate gets down, I would say, below about 40. Like I said before, if it's a small patient that has a low heart rate, I'm more uh apt to treat it versus a larger, healthy, young patient um, that's active that normally will have a heart rate in the 40s or 50s under anesthesia. If they have a 
AV block. So if they have, you know, per se, a P wave with no QRS complex after it, and it's significant enough that I think it's affecting perfusion, I will go ahead and treat that with atropine. But again, I'm looking at other signs of perfusion, um, including blood pressure, capillary refill time, uh, that trick that I said with um, holding the positive pressure breath and looking at the waveform of the pulse oximeter, as well as listening to the Doppler flow signal, um, are all going to be ways that I'm going to help to assess perfusion under anesthesia and decide whether I need to treat that bradyarrhythmia. Now, tachyarrhythmias, uh, you think about pain, hypovolemia, you know, massive vasodilation, or sometimes with cardiac disease. So I always kind of troubleshoot that in that order. So again, I assess for volume status, make sure that I'm not hearing a depression in my Doppler flow signal um, or seeing any amplitude changes of the pulse ox waveform. If I do, then I treat that tachyarrhythmia with fluids. If that is solid um, or I'm not seeing any volume deficit issue, I'll always treat for pain because it's something that is very easy to treat for um, and something that you don't want to miss. So, uh, in those situations, if that still doesn't resolve it, then I'm going back and just kind of reassessing, redoing, um, and making sure that I'm covering all my bases with volume and pain. Wonderful information. I always joke with veterinary students, if I ask them a question as a criticalist and they don't know the answer, they should always just guess perfusion or metabolic acidosis. <laughs> and so important that we make sure our patients are appropriately perfused, especially under anesthesia. So don't forget perfusion, perfusion, perfusion. So important. The next thing I wanted to talk about is hypercapnia. I think the majority of veterinary clinics out there do have a pulse ox, but a lot of times they don't actually have an end tidal CO2. Is it worth getting? And how do we know if our patient is becoming or developing hypercapnia? And what is hypercapnia? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, whenever I'm asked by smaller clinics, uh, you know, what monitoring equipment is important for me to have in practice? Um, and this goes from somebody that is even strictly just doing spays, neuters, dentals, uh, and small mass removals. For me, the number one piece of equipment to have is a Doppler because you can find so much information from a Doppler. The second most important piece of anesthetic equipment to have for me is a capnograph. So hypoventilation, we should say, is probably one of the most common complications under isoflurane or sevoflurane anesthesia. So we define hypoventilation as an end tidal CO2 greater than 45 millimeters of mercury, um, and that's something that is very easy to get when you have a patient having respiratory depressant from an inhalant anesthesia. For me, hypoventilation is something that needs to be taken seriously because we know some of the negative side effects of hypercapnia include things like respiratory acidosis, which can affect patients' healing ability um, and as well as create areas that have an increased propensity for infection. So that's a very important thing to keep under control. Hypercapnia can also cause CNS depression. So if you have a patient that's recovering very slowly from anesthesia and they were hypoventilating under anesthesia, you know, and you're not picking up on that and testing for that, that's something that a patient can get into trouble very quickly for in recovery. The biggest thing in recovery that we have to worry about, when we have patients on 100% oxygen during a procedure, we don't have to worry as much about a little bit of hypercapnia. However, when you now switch them back to room air, 21% oxygen, that's when having a hypo 
ventilatory patient, that hypercapnive can turn into a very emergent situation where that patient can have a very hypoxemic event, saturate very lowly, uh, and potentially have an arrest situation in recovery. For me, one of the biggest complications I hear from private practice or general practitioner veterinarians doing anesthesia is that, you know, the patient did fine under anesthesia. Everything was great. We got into recovery. They were extubated. They were breathing. Their pulses felt good. Uh, You know, we went out to lunch. We came back, and the patient was dead in the cage. 9.5 times out of 10, that's going to be from a patient that's hypoventilating in a cage because they were hypercapnic under anesthesia um, and something that they didn't uh, overcome in recovery and they succumb to. So for me, this is probably one of the biggest anesthetic complications um, to be considerate of during anesthesia, especially coming out of anesthesia in the early post-extubated phase to make sure that we're either providing oxygen supplementation, monitoring pulse oximetry in recovery, or just making sure we're aggressively addressing it while they're still anesthetized and making sure that they're not hypoventilating. All right. The next thing I wanted to ask you about is pain management, especially with the difficulty in getting opioids nowadays. Now, I know there are a couple of compounding pharmacies that do make hydromorphone and methadone, a couple other options. But I would say in general practice, some veterinarians are having a hard time finding opioids. What do we do in terms of pain management, whether or not that's injectable as a pre-op or post-op, or even for oral analgesics to go home with in the face of this opioid crisis? Yeah, it's a really big topic right now, unfortunately, is this opioid crisis. So one thing to remember is to reach out to sources that you might not think about right away. So there's different pharmacies, um, different compounding uh, groups, um, and different uh, you know manufacturers that are going to have different availability at different times. So another important thing to remember is to conserve what you have. So what I mean by that is do not ever hold pain medication from a patient. Um, however, think about your dosing and think about allometric or metabolic scaling when it comes to actually picking a dose for your patient, meaning the Great Dane probably doesn't need as much hydromorphone as the Chihuahua needs for the same procedure. So if you're doing a spay uh, and you're using hydromorphone as your pain medication, using a 0.1 mg per kg dose for a very small patient is very appropriate. But for a very large patient, what we've been doing at this hospital is scaling back on our initial dose. So typically for a patient over, I would say, about 40 kilograms, I'm using an equivalent 0.1 mg per kg dose of hydromorphone for a less than 10 kilogram patient. I'm using a 0.05 mg per kg dose for those larger patients. You can always give more analgesic if the patient needs it. And we're also utilizing a lot more local blocks, local and regional anesthesia in these cases. So to help decrease the amount of opioid that we end up having to give both prior to, during, and post-operatively. So local blocks that you can do in private practice are plentiful. So it's not just dental blocks. That's usually the first thing that general practitioners think about when they think about local blocks they can do, but also ring blocks line blocks, even epidurals are very easy for a general practitioner if they're utilizing it frequently to get good at um, and feel safe and confident doing. 
remembering that it's not just lumbosacral epidurals, but that caudal epidural um, or tail block that can be really positive and beneficial for a lot of different surgeries in the hind end. So that being said, um, there's other injectable options that we have for analgesia besides just opioids. Um, One opioid that gets forgotten about a lot is buprenorphine. As a partial mu agonist, it's something that people don't always reach for for painful procedures, but it can be a very potent um, and very good and long-lasting analgesic for even tough surgeries as well. Other analgesic choices that we have are things like ketamine that does need to be used as a continuous rate infusion if you're using it for analgesia, lidocaine, um, as well as dexmedetomidine. Ketamine, I usually will utilize for more neuropathic pain, which most surgeries you can argue have a component of neuropathic pain, but typically we'll use it for orthopedic procedures, back surgeries, amputations, um, and procedures where we know we're going to have an increased wind-up and ongoing pain issue postoperatively. Lidocaine, for me, is much more of a visceral analgesic, so I'll utilize it a lot in abdominal procedures, so splenectomies, liver biopsies, even uh, intestinal surgeries, spays, neuters, things like that, um, where you're creating a lot of visceral stimulation. Dexmedetomidine um, in sub-anesthetic doses can be a very potent analgesic as well um, as a very potent um, MAC reducer, but something that you do have to be patient-selective for because it can have the ability to decrease perfusion under anesthesia. So something just to be considerate of, but to potentially use in a multimodal approach to analgesia. Oral analgesic options, you know, is a very good topic in veterinary medicine. A lot of the times we think for a gold standard for an oral analgesic, we typically will reach for anti-inflammatory medications um, or specifically non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications. For me, I choose to use these drugs post-operatively because of the potential for hypotension, blood loss during procedures. I don't want to get into a situation where I'm potentially decreasing renal perfusion by using these drugs preoperatively, but it is something that in patients that are normotensive that don't have a lot of blood loss, I'll give injections of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs going into the recovery period so that those drugs will start to work um, and be analgesic for these patients coming out of surgery. One important thing to remember is that old age mild renal disease, mild liver uh, insufficiency, things like that aren't contraindications to using non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications. But in those situations, I'll either dose, reduce, or decrease the frequency that I'm using these drugs. Other oral analgesic options are still there. Typically in our hospital, uh, we're utilizing oral codeine, which is an oral opioid. Uh, We're using gabapentin, um, which is a much more uh, highly used drug for neuropathic pain as well, but does have some very good acute pain management potential and opportunity. Tramadol is something that we've really gotten away from using um, because I really don't think that tramadol in the vast majority of patients works extremely effectively as a weak opioid. It's much more potent as a serotonin reuptake inhibitor um, and something that really I think just causes more sedation rather 
rather than overt analgesia. So for us, oral opioids, gabapentin, um, and non-steroidal anti-inflammatories are kind of our major go-tos for oral analgesic options. Remembering that we can use oral transmucosal buprenorphine as well as methadone in our postoperative patients as well. In terms of oral codeine, I know certain states have a limitation on how many days they can dispense. Is there a general guideline for how much we should be dispensing to prevent any kind of opioid addiction from pet owners or misuse? And I guess the second follow-up question is, how well do we know that oral codeine is absorbed in the dog? Yeah, it's a great question. So if you look at pharmacokinetic studies that look at oral codeine, um, there is a lot of question depending on the dose that you use and the dosing frequency that you use if you're getting good absorption. I will say that oral codeine as far as oral analgesics in studies probably has the a better um, absorption rate than other oral opioids. Um, however, it's something that I'm very hesitant to send home as a single agent analgesic, very similar to tramadol. Um, I'm very hesitant to send home as a single agent analgesic. So relying on things like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications um, and other forms of pain management are going to be more of a gold standard and something that as a single agent, I feel much more comfortable using. It's very important to remember not to send home too much of any drug that you're going to send home because any drug has the potential of being abused, um, of being misplaced, of being used in a, a way that's not appropriate for what you actually intended to send it home for. So in New Jersey, um, there is a seven-day rule. So meaning that you're not able to prescribe something for more than a seven-day period with your initial prescription. Um, And that's a rule that here at Red Bank we actually follow. So if we have a patient that needs longer-term pain management options, they're either coming back or, you know, we're utilizing different forms of pain management rather than sending large quantities of oral opioids home with owners. So I usually recommend, um, you know, one important thing to remember is that it's really about client education and explaining to owners that when we do such a good job with preemptive analgesia, utilizing injectables in the hospital, local blocks, other forms of pain management such as ice packing, massage therapy, acupuncture, you know, and things like that, it's not usually necessary for more than a two or three day period, even after a major surgery, to have longer than that for oral analgesia at home. So typically we're sending home somewhere between, I would say, two to five days of oral analgesics, even after a major surgery. And if patients are needing things farther off than that, then they're usually coming back for a pain management consultation. That's really, really helpful to know. I would say I generally don't recommend more than five days of oral codeine, but five to seven days and then rechecking or using multimodal therapy. I became much more empathetic to it when I had my own cesarean section for my child and it was so painful still. And uh, nope, no refills after five days. You just have to use high dose ibuprofen, high dose acetaminophen. So it was a really interesting um, personal experience, but Again, I'm a huge proponent of multimodal therapy. All right, the last question I wanted to ask you, what is your go-to for sedating the fractious or fearful or 
anxious patient, and I hate to say fractious, you know, I'm going to say that they're very frightened and fearful, um, but what what is your go-to for a dog versus a cat, especially when they're hissing and you can't even escort them to see if they have a heart murmur? Yeah, it's something that, you know, I have to deal with on at, at least a daily basis, multiple times a day, that we do have patients come into the hospital that are very um, anxious, very frightened, that, you know, we really need to kind of take a step back and reassess the situation. So I will start by saying that, especially when you have a patient that is known to be fearful in the hospital, that's known to be anxious um, on car rides, anything like that, preemptively giving them something before they even come into the hospital is always going to be of benefit. So preemptive oral sedatives or preemptive oral anti-anxiety medications um, are going to be something that can change an entire day for a patient once they come into the hospital. Typically for dogs, that's usually using something like trazodone or a combination of trazodone and acepromazine. A lot of the times what I'll have owners do is give those medications orally about two hours before they get into the car to come here. Um, And that way, by the time they get into the car, the drugs are already on board. They're already starting to relax a little bit, get a little sedated, get a little anti-anxiety medication, you know, on board. Uh, And then by the time they come into the hospital, even if we do have to give them injectable sedation, it's something that we, A, can decrease the dose of injectable sedation that we end up having to use, um, and B, it's a little less stressful of an experience for them once they get that sedation in the hospital. For cats, um, I typically will use either gabapentin or trazodone. Um, And again, it's something that it really just depends on how the owner ends up wanting to give that medication to the patient. Cats can be a little bit notoriously difficult to get drugs into at home. The nice thing is that we have liquid suspension options for both gabapentin and trazodone. However, gabapentin also comes in a capsule formation where you can open a capsule, sprinkle it on a small amount of wet food, which I am very okay cats having a small amount of wet food, um, you know, the morning, even if they're going to be anesthetized once they come into the building. Once they come into the building, I think it's a completely another story. I think that making the environment friendly, um, meaning if you have, you know, admits first thing in the morning and you have 10 crazy dogs that are coming in and two cats that are coming in for procedures, maybe making sure that we have separate areas, even when they first initially come in, that we can, you know, just either bring a cat right into an exam room so that they don't have to hear, you know, the dogs going crazy and barking in the front lobby. Um, We have, you know, maybe some nice fear-free music playing in those exam rooms. Um, We've used appropriate pheromones in the exam rooms for either a dog or a cat just to create an environment that is not overly scary. You know, we're not using big, bright colors. We maybe have the lights dimmed a little bit. If you have a dimmer switch in the room, um, you know, you're not coming in blazing in your white coat. You know, you're coming in and and maybe scrubs that are a little bit more muted um, that aren't going to scare that patient when you first initially come up to them to try and escort them. And then, you know, that being said, you know, I am an anesthesiologist. Um, My coworker here always says drugs, not hugs. Um, I like to say drugs 
and hugs um, because it's something that, you know, you do want to calm them, keep them comfortable, um, make sure that you're creating a nice, calm environment um, that's friendly. However, utilizing drug therapy is also going to be, especially for my job, a very important component. So in the patients, even that have oral sedation on board, coming into a room, either giving them more oral sedation when they're first admitted, if their procedure isn't going until later in the day, or giving them injectable sedation in the room with the owner there, letting them sit in the room and get sedated prior to taking them into the back, I think also becomes a really big help. Fantastic point. I always say, don't wait, medicate. Really important that it's part of the fear-free that we get those oral drugs at home on board. And obviously that's hard in the emergent situation or the critically ill patient, but um, yeah. I wish more veterinarians would actually dispense the trazodone, the high-dose gabapentin. It's so helpful and really minimizes the stress for, for all parties involved. Any last tips on anesthesia or analgesia you want to leave us with? I think one important thing to remember is that every experience is going to teach you something, you know, important in your career. I'm learning things even still on a daily basis. Um, you know, I think it's always learning, always moving forward. One important thing to remember is that there's enough anesthesiologists and pain management specialists out there in the country now that are in private practice in your state. So don't forget about reaching out, um, getting lunch and learns, um, you know, calling us for advice. Even if you're in Michigan, I'm happy to speak with you here in New Jersey. So don't hesitate to reach out with any questions, comments, concerns, um, anything that we can do to help. Part of my job is spreading education, you know, spreading word on how to do safer anesthesia, um, how to make patients experience in the hospital, um, you know, more comfortable, more calm. Uh, and I'm very happy to do that. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Zimmerman, so much. I know anesthesia can seem scary with the opioid crisis. Analgesia seems difficult and just so important that we uh, consider all your tips. Thank you again for taking the time to do this Vectoral Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. 